as we come back to the story of Balak and Balaam, Balak is the king of Moab, and Balaam is the prophet that we don't know much about. We studied in detail last week topically that as Moses and the children of Israel were coming on their wilderness wandering on the east side of the Jordan River in the Dead Sea, and they're getting prepared to enter into the promised land that God had promised them, it's been almost 40 years, the wilderness wandering, it's coming to an end, and there are people being prepared to go in. They've already conquered Sihon and Og, the kings on the east side. They had no intention to go to war with Moab. They didn't want to mess with Moab. Moab is the descendants of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. But Balak, not a man of faith, a man who worships uh, false gods, he thinks the worst-case scenario doesn't go to Moses and say, hey, what's your intentions here? He just presumes the worst, so he gives money for hire to go hire Balaam, this prophet, from up by the Syrian Iraqi area, and Balaam refuses him the first time, and then the second time, Balaam concedes. Remember the first time, the Lord said to him, don't go with these guys, don't curse Israel, I've blessed them. It was a no-no and a yes, what God had in for Israel and for, for Balaam. But Balaam was determined to go, and we know for the whole story of Balaam that he does go, he pronounces four prophecies, and we studied this on Tuesday night, He has four oracles where he speaks over the nation of Israel. And Balak, the king, wanted him to curse them, but he blesses them all four times. The progressive prophecies where they get better and better for the people of faith and the children of Israel, where the fourth prophecy actually is a prophetic word concerning Jesus Christ. So the irony of this this prophet who had his donkey talk to him, who's in the New Testament for being a, a bad guy and whatnot, he still spoke truth concerning the future of Jesus Christ and concerning the nation of Israel. Eventually, he gave counsel to Balak how to get the people of Israel in trouble, get them to worship your false gods with your beautiful women, to commit sexual morality, and then you don't have to curse them because God will chasten them. That's exactly what happened. Balaam didn't get away with anything. He got his wealth, most likely, but it was the wages of unrighteousness, the New Testament calls it. He was struck down by the sword of Israel. We see that later on in the book of Numbers. And Balak was struck down by the sword of Israel, so they came to nothing. That's the whole panoramic view of these guys, continuing part two from last week. But as we come to our text tonight in chapter 23, there's a very interesting word and oracle that I think is very timely and appropriate for us as the body of Christ on January 9th, 2021, sharing planet Earth with the human race, with all that's gone on, what's going on, and what will continue to go on in our timeline. In chapter 23, Balaam gave the first oracle, and it began with the most simple statement that how can I curse whom God has not cursed? That's a consistent thread with his four oracles. And then his second oracle came there in uh, verse 13, this second oracle where they go, and Balak says, no, you need to curse them. Let's get a different perspective. And in this second oracle, we pick it up in verse 18, where this is the oracle of Balaam concerning Israel, the second of the four. So then he took up his oracle and said this, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent or recant. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Now, the third oracle talks about his kingdom being an almighty kingdom, unstoppable kingdom, and the fourth oracle concerning the scepter of Jesus Christ. So these do build, and I want to give you that context. But 
What an appropriate and profound statement comes for us here in verse 19 as Balaam tells him in verse 18, listen to me, Balak, you're fighting God. And here, this, this man, Balaam, who would be struck down by God, yet speaks the truth for God. For everything he says in these oracles is true. And here in verse 19, this phrase, God is not a man. And then part two of it is, nor a son of man. As we look at these two verses, 19 and 20, let us meditate tonight as a, as a family, for most of us know each other pretty well, as a church family. We've been through a lot in 2020, and we're looking at plenty in 2021 and an uncertain future. Tonight, we want to meditate on this phrase that God is not a man. God is not a man. Now, we know that, but sometimes it's good to meditate and really think about who God is, his nature, his character, his power, his attributes, his revealed word, what he stands for, and what he stands against. Because God is not a man. And so often, people erect for themselves altars and gods of their own mind who are gods of men. So Moloch is the God who kills babies because people have been killing babies since the dawn of creation. So Moloch became a God of men who you offer your unwanted babies to. Molech. There's gods of war, gods of lust like Astrith. Men, the descendants of Adam and Eve, men and women, have long built for themselves gods and goddesses, Greek gods that took on Roman names under the Roman Empire, that reflect fallen men and fallen humanity. They reflect the passions of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And even now in our world, where Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way by which we can come to the Father, there are many competing gods against Jesus. But as God said in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, I am God, and there is no other. So in the midst of this fascinating story, after Israel had just received the law of God a few decades prior, there are people of covenant for less than 40 years. The new generation is arising. The old generation has died off, everyone over 20. Moses is going to die soon. Joshua is older, and he'll be the new leader. And only Caleb is over 20 from that group from the time of Kadesh Barina, some 38 years before this. God declares to this nation that's about to go into its promises and enter into everything God has for them as a people, according to God's promises, he says to Balaam, to Balak, God is not a man, nor is he the God of men, nor is he a son of man. In this context, we keep that in mind. God is not a man. We've looked at men. We've listened to men. We've watched women and men of great power make many decisions affect our lives profoundly in the last 10 months. Men and women that we've trusted, no matter what our worldview is, and we've watched them make decisions We've watched people in the healthcare, the very highest level, say, trust me, 
And then tell us just a few weeks ago, I was lying earlier because you wouldn't accept the truth, but you can trust me now. God is not a man, nor the son of man, of a man. Our vision is simple and clear under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he can be trusted in all things. We trust him with our soul, our life, and our future, and everything we love and hold dear. So in this text, God is not a man nor a son of man. Let's think about his character. The first thing we see about God is not a man is that he doesn't lie. God is not a man that lies. Men lie. Men conspire. Men deceive. God said in the book of Proverbs, there's things he hates, and one thing he hates is people who shuffle the feet and wink the eye. That's backdoor conspiracies. That's saying one thing and meaning another. That's not how God is. There's no sliding of the hands. He also hates an unjust scale. An unjust scale is a lie. He doesn't do that. We're told even lest we think that God would lie in his character, we're told in the the New Testament it's impossible for God to lie. It is completely against his nature. God never, ever has lied, nor will he ever lie. God is outside time, space, and matter. God is not like us. See, we want to compare our understanding of God in our finite mind to our understanding of a human being, because that's the best we can do in our finite mind. But God tells us, don't do that. Because as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts and ways above you. And the secret things belong to the Lord, but what I've revealed belongs to you and to your children. So the moment we think we're really wise and we can outsmart God and we can judge his word or judge his character or think we know something about him other than what he's revealed about himself in his word and his character, we become the wisdom of men, but we're told in the Old Testament, New Testament that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. God is the great I am. We only have to go back to that fire at the burning bush with Moses. When God says, take off your sandals where you stand on holy ground, that fire did not consume the bush. That's the holy fire. That's the tongues of fire. Maybe that's what the fire became when Meshach, Chakra, and Abengo were there with the Son of Man, Jesus, in the fire. Not sure, but they didn't smell like fire, so that seems like a supernatural fire. But when God revealed himself at the burning bush to Moses, Moses said, who would I say sent me? Like, who do I say sent me? Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Marx, Lenin? Who do I say sent me? I am that I am. That means the all-sufficient one. And when Jesus was walking the earth and he claimed to be If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and he claimed to be God, when he said, before Abraham, I am, he took the title of the burning bush, and the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he meant, and they picked up stones to stone him for taking that title. And for this cause, he was crucified for no sin, for five different people, including the Roman government said, I find no fault in this man. He was exonerated by everybody, including the Roman guard of the cross. Surely this was an innocent man. It was for being God for which he was crucified. Know that he makes himself out to be God. 
The father revealed himself to Moses in the bush and said, I am that I am all sufficient one. That means he doesn't need us. That means he's outside our universe. When we step into eternity, and we've had many loved ones go before us, it is so profoundly different than everything we understand. We have to put on these glorified bodies. Our whole understanding changes profoundly. And we know that there's no more tears or sorrow, and we know that this life would have a meaning and purpose for eternity, for we know we give an account for our lives in eternity, and what we receive in eternity is based upon our faithfulness or lack thereof in eternity. So we know this matters. But when we step into eternity, it's such a different dimension that we cannot grasp it in our cognitive capacities as human beings. And God declares that. So by faith, like Jesus said, the faith of a child, we simply have to receive and believe that God is the self-sustained one apart from all of us. And he's not got to start and a finish linear like each of us when we were conceived and came into the world when we breathed our last. He's not like that. He's of a completely different dimension. He's got over the entire universe, the billions of galaxies. He holds the stars in the width of his hand, if you will, and he knows all of them by name. He knows the hairs on our head. God is not a man that he would lie. And God is not the son of man that he would recant or repent. So the beauty of being here tonight is a rally around God who does not lie and does not need to recant or repent of anything. Every song we've ever sung here for almost 18 years is a song that transcends time, space, and matter for all eternity. Isn't that wonderful? Every Bible says we've gone through the Bible more than once. Whether it's Jeremy Foster teaching verse by verse or Raul Diaz or Jason Wright, the different people that have taught here, the different people that have led worship here, and all that we are 18 years into this experience as a church family. We've worshiped the one who's not a man and does not lie and does not need to recant. Isn't that comforting on January 9th? We're not building our house upon the sand. Our house is already built upon the rock because there's no God like our rock and our God is a rock and he says so. So we shouldn't be moved by anything because the sands and winds and tides and floods of humanity come and go with every generation, but our God's a rock. He does not lie. It's not in his character. He, he can't lie. It's contrary to his character. Maybe you think, like, there's things that we can't do as human beings. We can't fly on our own, right? We just physically can't do that. In of ourselves, we can't just fly. Like, we just can't do that. Or there's certain other things. We can't, go, we can't hold our breath for 30 minutes underwater. Right? There's just certain things we can't do physically by the natural laws of the universe that God's designed. God is who he is. Whether 8 billion people on this planet want to believe it or not, he is who he is, and he's I am. He does not lie. So worship generations will begin a new year. Rejoice that when we're singing these songs, we're not singing to a man or a woman of great power. We're not praising Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, or Catherine the Great, or Peter the Great, Louis the Sun King, the 14th, the greatest ruler ever probably of Europe, or any other monarch, you know, William and Mary, you know, whoever of the greatest. We're not praising Stalin or Hitler or any of these people that at times were praised by the masses. No, 
We're praising who the church has praised for 2,000 years. God who's not a man who does not lie. So as we build our lives in 2021, as we go forward, we take great joy in knowing that like, God's got everything. We can trust every word he says. He's never going to lie. He's never going to lie to you. You've been lied to in relationships. You've been lied to in business. You've certainly been lied to by government and people in power. He'll never, ever lie to us. When you open your Bible and you read Genesis all the way to Revelation, you will never read anything that's a lie. You'll only be reading truth, and that's why we should be reading our Bibles now more than ever. The spies, the 10 spies brought back a bad report because they didn't believe. Be the one of the two spies that reads the Bible, believes it, and gives a good report. Because that's who we are. That's our legacy for us. I'm so joyful this night in the Lord Jesus Christ that as I read my Bible this morning in Luke 17, and as I teach this Bible tonight to you, God does not lie. So good. Our confidence, the foundation of all of our confidence in the human experience of our life and what we're building our life upon is not upon professors, politicians, philosophers of bygone eras, or religious leaders of men, or gods of men. The confidence that we're going to rise from the grave once we breathe our last is based upon what God promises us through his son, by his son, and God does not lie. So when you and I are preparing to breathe our last and we're staring down the grave, you just stare it down. You stare it down like there's no tomorrow, like Daniel staring down a lion in the lion's den because our God does not lie. And as you've been saying, all the promises are yes and amen. Right. Now, second thing. So we're built on the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. When you believe that and you apprehend that and lay hold of that, that's what we mean by let God be true and every man a liar. I mean, you know all my go-to verses. It's like, I don't, do I ever teach a Bible study and not say let God be true and every man's a liar? God is light and him is no darkness at all, right? Like, do you understand why I say those things? Because you walk out of here and there are liars. <laughs> and there are people that say God is darkness, but God is light. And there's no shadow of turning with the Lord, with the Father of lights. But also God doesn't recant. Now, aren't you glad God never has to get up and ever say he's sorry? Can you imagine if we're gathered here and we're worshiping Jesus and, you know, Jesus is in our midst right now. He's in our midst. Could you imagine if, like, we had the audacity and the guile? Because some people do curse God and certainly people are blaspheming God. I mean, there was rioting going on earlier last year where they were blaspheming Jesus Christ. They were cursing Jesus Christ. I don't know why they're cursing Jesus Christ while they're burning federal buildings, but they did because you can, well, you could have, or maybe you still can. I don't know. You can do that sometimes in the human experience. Can you imagine us saying, like, Jesus, you owe us an explanation? Jesus, you need to say you're sorry. You say you're sorry because you didn't, you know, heal my mom or make this marriage work out or save my son or what, you know what I'm saying? Like, that would just, it's just, it's, 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 an, it's an anthema to even say that. It's blasphemous to even think like that. We're worshiping Jesus because we know he's good. He doesn't have to get up and say he's sorry. Now, I could get up and say I'm sorry for a lot of things. And if I, you know, like, so could you. We need to say we're sorry. That's part of growing in the Lord. Hopefully we don't have to say we're sorry for the same things over and over. 
But it's a healthy thing for us in 2021 when we've been convicted because the word of God convicts us. You know, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the word of God reproves us, it corrects us. So when God's words reprove us and correct us, let God betray a man a liar. Okay, I'm the liar, God's true, it corrects me, and I need to say, I'm sorry. I need to say, I'm sorry to the Lord, like David, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. Psalm 51, I need to say, I'm sorry. And we might need to, you know, make things right. Jesus said, before you go to the judge, go to that person and make restitution. Make it right. We just need to say we're sorry. And I've said this many times, but if we can just acknowledge when we're wrong, accept it, and humble ourselves, and then be willing to take that next step of humility and saying we're sorry to a person, I have found nine times out of ten it'll make everything much better. Now, one in ten, it kind of doesn't, no matter what, because some people don't want to receive your sorry and no matter what you say, you can never appease them. you got to recognize them quickly and not let them poison and wreck your life. They're toxic people. You still got to, as it says in Romans 13, live as much as up to you, live peacefully with all men. And nothing's worse than saying you're sorry and people don't accept it, right? Like you have to humble yourself to say you're sorry and say you're sorry and they don't accept it. That's pretty brutal. Some of us know what that feels like. That hurts. But it shouldn't make you any less sorry. Because ultimately our sin's against the Lord and if we need to make it right with somebody... We make it right with the Lord, and then we try to make it right with people. If they accept it, great. Like Abraham Lincoln said, have I not lost an enemy when they become my friend? If you can do that, great. But if they're still going to be your enemy, what can you do? They might be your enemy because they don't like the way you look. They might be your enemy because they don't like your, God's blessings on your life. They might be your enemy because of your skin color or your gender or whatever, your education or lack of education. There's no shortages of why human beings hate other human beings. And maybe they think they're God, so they have the right not to forgive you. But as long as you make it right with God, you recant, I recant, we recant, we repent. And then we do what we can to make it right with other people. We're going to have a very healthy life in 2021. We just keep giving it to the Lord. We'll be blessed. We'll be blessed. That's how we want to be. God is not a son of man that he needs to repent. See, there's a lot of people... Because of their worldviews and the decisions they make and how they see things from their moral prism, they would want God to repent. The fact that God defines a man and a woman genetically, there's many people in the name of pseudo-education that think God owes them an apology to think that actually God made men and women and that's it. But that's what he did make. Obviously, we know that. Anyone knows that. Science confirms that. It's ludicrous to think anything other than that. But there's people that hate Jesus because they think there's more than two genders. And they would want God to recant and repent. How dare you be so narrow-minded to think there's a, a, a men's bathroom and a women's bathroom. If I told you these things four years ago, you would have thought I was nuts. But it's all happening fast. Because the father of lies, who always lies and is a murderer, is perpetrating the biggest of all lies imaginable. Very quickly. But know this, as we read our Bible, as we receive his word, as we praise his name, Jesus will never need to interrupt a song and say, I'm really sorry about what I did. <laughs> Your pastor may need to say that, and maybe even our worship leaders may need to say that. Jesus Christ, who we're here for, who we're abiding in, who we're looking to as the author and finisher of our faith, he will never after, ever, ever have to apologize to any of us for anything he's ever done. Because God is good and God is light. And him is no darkness at all. Isn't that a wonderful thing? If we built our life around our confidence in men and women, 
and all, all of our hope is in them, and it all falls apart, we might want an apology. And even people that you don't like, sometimes when you seem apologize, you're like, okay, yeah. Like, it's kind of in us that when someone apologizes, even if you can't stand them from work or their political worldviews or their philosophies, when they say they're sorry, you kind of like, there's something humbling about someone saying they're sorry that kind of humbles you while they say it. Jesus never, ever, ever will have to recant or recount or say he's sorry. And that's why Psalm 18.30 is one of the first verses I ever memorized. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He's a shield to all those who trust in him. Aren't you glad that Jesus is never going to walk into his church here ever and have to say he's sorry? Because everything he's going to do in our life is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God is good all the time. That's very comforting to start the new year. That makes us want to look unto Jesus that much more and let him be our confidence that much more for everything we're facing. As difficult things come our way for the human race, for this country, citizens of this country, for you in our lives, just living the human experience, it's just so nice to know that as we face them, we have a perfect Savior who's over our lives, guiding us in and through all of them all of our dreams, all of our disappointments, and anything in between. There's no mountaintop higher than the glory of Jesus Christ, and there's no valley lower than the place of this, the man of sorrows went when he went to the cross for us. He'll never have to say he's sorry. Now us, we may need to say we're sorry. So in 2021, if you need to say you're sorry, say you're sorry. But Jesus will never have to say he's sorry, ever. It's his universe. It's perfect. He's perfect. That blood shed on the cross is the blood of God. And it provides us a way to be redeemed when we say we're sorry. But he doesn't need to say he's sorry. He never has and he never will. Then we see the third thing. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So the third thing we see in this text tonight from Balaam's prophecy is that a rhetorical question, if you will, like an obvious question, but has he said and will he not do? Is not that confirmed by everything in the Bible? Has he not said and will he not do? Was not Jesus born in Bethlehem? Was not Jesus born a descendant of Abraham? A descendant of Jacob? I mean, because there's Ishmael's a descendant of Abraham and his offspring. But he's not the son of promise. Isaac to Jacob. Was Jesus not born of the tribe of Judah? Didn't God say 2,000 years before Jesus was born, the scepter will not depart from Judah? Is not Jesus from the tribe of Judah? And a thousand years later, didn't he say that from the offspring of David, the Messiah would come? Is not Jesus from the house of David? Is not Mary, the virgin, from the house of David? Yes, he is. Was he not born in Bethlehem, though his parents lived in Nazareth? Did not a Caesar make a decree to tax people to make them go to where they're from? And thus it came to pass exactly like God said 700 years before. See, every promise comes to pass. All of them, every single one of them. And for all the hundreds and probably thousands of promises that God has spoken in his word, fulfilled exactly on time. I mean, just Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, had you known this your day. Now, from Daniel's book, 500 years before, God said, 
that from the time the decree goes to rebuild the temple, it would be 490 years when you work how the calendars would work and you harmonize them till Messiah comes. That day Jesus came into Jerusalem on that donkey's colt. That's exactly to the day prophesied in the book of Daniel. Have I not said, and will I not do it? Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And the only sign I give you is the same sign uh, as the sign of Jonah. As Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish, so too will the Son of Man be in the grave. And his enemy said, hey, Pilate, he said he's going to rise from the grave, so let's just... Guys, come and take his body. You know, we can't let this happen. He's like, hey, all the troops you want, go seal, secure as you feel it's secure. And they did. But could all the armies in the world have kept Jesus in the grave on the third day? Of course not. Has he said and will he not do? Psalm 16, my holy one will not undergo decay. Has he not said and will he not do? So as we're gathered here tonight, again, on the cusp of a new year and all these uncertainties surrounding us in our personal lives and as citizens of our country and humanity, we have to just continue to let our confidence be that God is going to keep every promise. And we've been talking about this. The promises of God are all or nothing. In this room tonight, if we're born again and born of the Spirit, we have all the promises, not some. And if we're not born again, we have zero promises applied to us as adopted heirs in Christ, Romans 8. See, we have all the promises applied to our life or zero promises as far as being joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8. So we're redeemed people. Our Heavenly Father's trust in estate is beyond our comprehension. Now, some of you might be in someone's trust or estate, and some of you might have your kids in a trust or an estate, in a will and all those kind of things, and you younger people may not understand, but you get like a, you know, you have a healthcare directive, you might have a DNR, do not resuscitate, that kind of goes with a healthcare directive, sort of, and then you've got like the trust, and you make amendments to the trust as things go on, because it always changes, and then you have like, you know, you have the will, it specifies who gets the couch and the car and these things, but the trust kind of runs itself when you die, and it just runs itself, and he might have a quick claim on a house, or if there's real estate, it, that way it doesn't go to probate, so the lawyers don't get the money, the, the kids get the money, whoever you're giving it to. And it's all there. It's all there. And it's important documents, so you might have extra copies. You have these copies in a safe. Someone else has copies, so it all runs itself. But that's just time, space, and matter that gets redistributed. Our Heavenly Father has a trust and an estate that has a universal equality to it for all those who are in Jesus Christ. Now, there's diversity of function in the kingdom. We know that. That's definitely implied pretty clearly by the scriptures based upon faithfulness. But all the promises are ours this side of eternity. And there's a glory that is all of ours this side of eternity. Because when he says it's not yet revealed what we will be, but when he comes in his glory, we will be in his glory. That's all of us. And when it says this corruptible must put on incorruptible, that's all of us. When this mortal must put on immortality, that's all of us. When this terrestrial must put on celestial, that's all of us. We are all getting a glorified body. We are all going to be with us no more tears and sorrow. And Romans 8 tells us that we're adopted and we're joint heirs with Christ. But part of the qualification, not 
a work of the flesh, but a qualification to really be entrusted with the wealth of an estate or a trust is what we do in this life. And that's how we're told in Romans 8 on the promise of the trust and being joint heirs with Christ. If we have suffered with him, it is like that movie, The Gift, where the guy receives a massive inheritance, but it's a series of events, of lessons he has to learn, the value of work, the value of people, the value of giving. And, you know, James Gardner is like the deceased dad, and he speaks to him from the past. And if you're watching this now, that means you learned the value of work. And, and in a way, he's, he's being prepared. So when he finally gets all the money, he wants to build a hospital and help people in need rather than spend it on himself as like some spoiled prodigal. Well, so too, God is preparing us to be a part of the trust and the estate and the inheritance. So all that goes on around us in general in the human experience in our timeline, all that goes on around us in the country we live in, I just can't even imagine being German in the 30s or Russian in the 30s, 1930s. I just can't even imagine. I just, how would you like to be, you know, Dutch in the 1930s or Danish or Polish? As it's all changes, going like, I've got a bad feeling where this is going and there's nowhere to run. And you own a house in Warsaw and, you know, you see what's happening. Hitler takes Sudetenland. Then he rolls into Austria and takes Austria. And then he rolls in and takes the Czech, Czechoslovakia. Man, he's coming for you in Poland. And you just feel so helpless. But nonetheless, you would have to, through faith, even as believers did at that time in the late 30s or just that timeline, or even those Germans that were opposed to what was going on, you would have to have total faith in Jesus and see it through the eyes of faith and know there's a bigger eternal picture in everything that's going around you. So as you lost things, as they took things, or as you things you could no longer say and all these things, I have a book called Things We Could No Longer Say. The former deacon, Corey Rudy, gave it to me. Corey gave me that book. I read it. It's a great book. It's about the Dutch church underground during the occupation of Nazi Germany. Things we could no longer say. Do you understand? So, we've got all the estate. We've got all the promises. Has he not spoken? Has he not come to pass? So, as we think of these things applied to our life, we know that we can trust him with everything. We should not be moved by uncertain futures or things that seem threatening to our life. Paul said, addressing the Ephesian elders, none of these things move me. And God's prepared me for a loss of freedoms, but none of these things move me because I don't count my life dear to me and I need to do what God's called me to do. And that's my whole purpose in life. See, the problem for me is I count my life dear to me. And I like comfort over trials and tribulations, as I think most of us do. But comfort doesn't do much to prepare me for anything good. Trials and tribulations always seems to produce growth in my life. I taught at Calvary Vista this morning, and I walk in that sanctuary, and there's a number of profound emotions that affect me when I walk into 885 East Vista Way. Fortunately, the first one is my wedding day. I stood on that podium today, and that's, 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 man, I stood right there with my wife. I, Jennifer coming down the aisle is so beautiful, wonderful. That's my first memory. Another one is having to vacuum that sanctuary. It'd take two hours when it had carpet. And Gaylor wouldn't turn the air conditioning on. Do you know how hot a sanctuary is in Vista in August? It's almost 100. 
took me two hours to vacuum. Some people have to clean toilets. Gaylord had a better plan. Let's make them vacuum for two hours in that sanctuary. The value of work, right? Those types of things. And of course, that's where we had the memorial service for my son. I can't even imagine who I'd be if we not lost our first child. That is the most profound event in my life. And I thought I was going to cry over it because a lot of times, because this is the anniversary of our son's passing, and sometimes I'm really vulnerable on it. And I thought for sure, oh man, Lord, please don't make me cry in front of the men today over my son because this is where we had the memorial. Pastor Chuck did the service and everything. I didn't cry over that. Um, But it's all shaped me. Like that all has shaped me, my wedding day. And that's where Hannah was dedicated. She refused to wear the bonnet we had for her. It, it would look so good in all the pictures. She just would not wear it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you can relate, you parents. It's all shaping us. I looked at that foyer that was so hard to walk through for a year after we lost our son. And I had to walk by all those moms with babies, every service. But today there's just no sorrow over that, just Thanksgiving. Because that molded me and shaped me. It really did. See, all these things mold and shape us. It's hard to pack up a baby room and move because you just can't live in that house anymore. Some of you know, some people can keep living in the house, some people can't. You know what I'm saying? You do. It's all part of the journey. But all the promises are yes and amen. Not one promise has failed you. On your darkest day, with the worst news or the worst thing you ever saw in your life, not one promise failed you. Not one. Not one. Have I not spoken, and will I not bring it to pass? Everything God has done in our life is good, and all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose and being conformed to the express image of Jesus Christ. There's a lot more of Jesus in my life, being reminded of that in that sanctuary today, of events that happened. Because I've shared this a few times, but I don't always share it. But when we lost our son, I was trying to figure out how to get out of ministry. I've been a pastor for one year. I was not yet ordained, and I was plotting, like, this has all been a big mistake. This is more than I ever signed up for. The beatdowns, we went out with the movie Sunriders, and the craziest things that happened, and men grabbed my wife trying to make her speak in tongues and all this stuff, just the weirdest things you ever saw. Surf movies that were in technical color, and then they turned green, and weird people coming up, and just the weirdest, gnarliest, ugliest stuff that first year when my wife was pregnant with Jesse, and we were doing all this stuff together. And I, by November of that year, was just, because I'm kind of like Jacob, you know, I'm like, okay, how do we, how are we going to work this one? And I was plotting how I could get out of the ministry, this was all a mistake, and get back in the surf industry and just find a way to provide for my wife and not have to serve people who don't say thank you and don't care. This was all just a big mistake. Like, I misread the Lord. Brian Broderson had good intentions, but no, no, this is all. No, this is not the way it's going to be. And I'm thankful 33 years later that this is the way it is. I walked by that garden where I used to have to weed everything. I was like, and it's all good memories. See, it has not every promise come to pass? The answer is yes. And the last thought we have, and think on your personal life right now. All this, it all came to pass, yes. And if you don't believe yes yet, just hang in there. Having done all stand. The yes is still coming. 
Those that wait upon the Lord, they'll not grow weary. They shall renew their strength, and they'll mount up with wings like eagles, and they'll soar. So if you're not soaring yet, don't worry. We'll get to eternity. We'll be soaring. But then the last thing he says is the bonus thought. And he said this with all the prophetic words concerning Israel, the four prophecies of Balaam. He says in verse 20, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. And I want to leave us with this thought. We are blessed. God has commanded the blessing on your life in Jesus' name. He didn't shed the blood of his son to leave you short of those blessings. That the son was cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The son was cursed so we could be blessed. God took the curse. He's the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. He took the curse so we could be blessed. Have I not commanded? Is it not so? What God has blessed is blessed. And you and I are blessed. We have every spiritual blessing that we need for this life and all eternity. We are blessed. When we wake up in the morning, just know we are blessed. You are a blessed woman. You are a blessed man. And these blessings are all ours as the promises are ours. And his blessings are upon us. And what God has blessed, no man, no entity, no force of any being in this universe can curse. We are blessed. Now, they can curse against the church. People can revile the church. They can revile you in Jesus' name, revile you against Jesus. But we're still blessed. Because even when we're persecuted, what did Jesus say? Blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' name's sake. We have been getting persecuted for Jesus' name. We have been getting persecuted for righteousness' sake. See, most of the persecution on the church in the last few years in, in America and worldwide is for righteousness sake because we believe marriage is a man or a woman. We believe in the sanctity of life. We believe in the value of all lives, right? And people hate that. So people have cursed that. They've cursed us. They've cursed that. So they try and shut your business down, you know, your bakery or whatever it is because they don't like that your light and your salt is an affront to them and their rebellion against God. So they curse, and they might shut down your business. They might take your home. Lots of homes have been lost because in Jesus' name. But what did Jesus tell Peter? He, whatever you lose, you get so much more in this age in the kingdom to come. Remember when he said that? Oh, Lord, we've lost, we've lost houses and families for your sake. He says, hey, I tell you, you'll receive so much more. All these houses get left behind. It doesn't matter how many zeros you have in the bank and where your decimal point lands, it still gets left behind. All of it. All of it. Like I said, Peter the Great's last day, one of the greatest kings in human history. He's dying. And by the way, he died with a lot of pain. So did Catherine the Great. A lot of physical pain. But on his last day, he wrote, I give. And he died and breathed his last. One of the greatest rulers in human history. He was trying to give something away. And he fell short. He couldn't take it with him. He thought of something more that he couldn't take with him. He wanted to give it away. It's too late. So give it away or have it taken away. We brought nothing into the world, Job said, and it's certain we'll take nothing out of it. Naked I came from the womb, naked I go. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, worship generation, we rejoice tonight because God is not a man. 
He's not trying to take, to redistribute, to wreck or ruin. He's not fighting God because he is God. He's not fighting righteousness because he is righteous. He's not fighting the light and the salt and the flavor because he is the light, the salt, and the flavor. Isn't that good news? So he's for us. He's a blessing God. And what he has blessed, your life, this church, the body of Christ, no man can curse. So let's think the best about what he wants to do in our life. Let's think the best about what he wants to do in the church, in your family, the people you love, even your enemies. Let's think the best because our God is a blessing God and we, of all people on this planet, are blessed because no one is as blessed as the church of Jesus Christ. We are his bride. He loves us. We are blessed. And no one can pronounce a curse on us that supersedes or removes the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the grave for our hope and justification, and giving us the power of the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire to empower us and equip us and see us through for everything he's called us to do until that trumpet sounds. We are blessed. No one can curse the church. People can slander the church. They can attack the church. But know this, we're his bride and he loves us. And he loves us with a perfect love. We're blessed. And he'll take care of his girl. He'll take care of his church. He's got us.